Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For more than 50 years, the U.S. Army War College's Eisenhower Series College Program, or ESCP, has been designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of dialogue, War College students in the program travel across the country, speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of corona and social distancing, the ESCP has scaled back some of its travels, though they have begun to do more in the spring of 2022. Here at A Better Peace, we aim to pick up some of the slack by giving Eisenhower program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights with you, our listening audience. Today's topic is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The U.S. Armed Forces, and especially the Army, have a broad mandate not only to defend the nation, but to try as best they can to reflect the nation they are sworn to defend. Living up to those commitments is an ongoing challenge, requiring both a willingness to take risks and a careful attention to the needs of the force. Our guests today, all members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2022, have studied aspects of DEI and join us to share their insights on both the challenges and opportunities of DEI policy. Lieutenant Colonel Brian Dudley is an Arizona Army National Guard officer. He has degrees in exercise science and leadership and disaster management. He started his career as an enlisted soldier commissioned in 2003 and has experience in field artillery, explosive ordnance disposal, recruiting, logistics, and WMDs. His background also includes civilian experience with the Arizona Department of Corrections. Lieutenant Colonel Dudley is married, has two children, and uses his free time to dabble in car restoration fitness training, and fishing of all types. Colonel Kevin Payne is a military police officer with over 25 years of active duty service. His experience includes command at Camp Buka, Iraq, and the United States Disciplinary Barracks. Key developmental positions in Fort Hood, Texas, and staff positions in the Pentagon and at the United States Army Military Police School round out his career. He has deployed on multiple occasions to Iraq and Afghanistan. In his next assignment, he will take command of the 15th MP Brigade and the United States Disciplinary Barracks Commandant in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thank you. So I'd like to give each of you a chance to summarize your uh, Eisenhower speeches, which you would normally give within uh, to within the normal sort of public versions of this uh, of this program. So I'd like to start with you, Colonel Kevin Payne. Thanks, Ron. So the topic that I took a look at was racial diversity in the U.S. Army, um, and, and essentially how it is a work in progress. I began the study of this topic. Uh, after deliberating on the influence that my grandfather had on me. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, He served in a segregated army, but he did mentor and guide me and and push me toward joining the military. And I always thought, why would my grandfather, who served in a segregated army 
and was treated badly in and out of uniform, asked me to join the army and, and really pushed me to join the army. So I took a look at African-Americans in the army from a historical perspective. Um, I looked back at 1948, the Truman's executive order, which ended segregation in the military and federal workforces. But I also understood at that time that that segregation continued in many units. In the 60s, we had the Civil Rights and Voting Act, which were transformative policies. But we had we had discrepancies in, in Vietnam. African-Americans made up 11 percent of the total population, but yet they made up 16 percent of all those drafted. And we also made up 23 percent of all combat troops and 25 percent of all those killed in action in, in Vietnam. That is not the type of diversity we were looking for. The Army had issues in the 70s attracting and retaining enlisted talent in the African-American community, and segregation continued. In the 80s, the Cold War era, the numbers of African-American enlistments rose, uh, and the Army expressly stated their intention to eliminate institutional racism and create better opportunities. I believe that these, uh, these proclamations uh, enhance the number of enlistments as indicated by, by the evidence. In the 2000s, the global war on terror era, the numbers of captains and lieutenants rose, but the problem was that the number of promotions of field grade officers was disproportionate to that rise in number of captains and lieutenants. To me, that screams of a lack of mentorship and professional development. So in the 2010s and beyond, we are in an era of several initiatives in the Army uh, to include the Army Diversity Task Force Project Inclusion and the Army People Strategy. And so time will only tell if these initiatives are effective. But the thing that attracted me in the Army People Strategy was the whole concept of mentorship and career-long assessment, which I believe contributed to the, the, the era of the 2000s where we had a rise in captains and lieutenants and a disproportionate number of promotions. The Army People Strategy emphasizes mentorship. It, it emphasizes educational, cultural awareness and diversity, uh, but it also emphasizes lifelong or career-long assessment through, through uh, projects such as Project Athena. So time will only tell if these initiatives are, to, are successful. We will find a way to measure uh, their effectiveness overall in, in the level of diversity in the Army. But I'm happy that the Army has initiatives at the strategic level. But again, at the lower levels, at the organizational and tactical levels, it's going to take mentorship and it's going to take effective assessment programs to, to solve this problem. So to conclude, I feel that a, an important part of this entire effort is the concept of mentorship and assessment. And even though there are statistical levels that the Army is seeking to achieve so that the Army is representative of the American population. Without mentorship and without mentors selecting mentees of different ethnicities and demographic backgrounds, I think that all of the initiatives will will potentially uh, not meet their mark. Well, thank you, Kevin. That gives us a lot to uh, a lot to chew on and a lot to think about. I want to bring in Brian Dudley to give uh, to give his uh, talk. Hey, Ron. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. Me and Kevin uh, have been through a couple of these engagements. And so to be back together to be a part of this process with you uh, is 
really special. So my topic looked at the LGBTQ integration uh, into the military, uh, specifically, obviously, the Army, uh, but the DOD writ large as well, and viewed it from a historical perspective uh, similar to Kevin's. When you look across the scope and scale of the Army's integration of uh, disadvantaged or uh, marginalized communities, you see a very long leg for both women and uh, different uh, ethnicities, specifically the African-American community. For women, you're talking about hundreds of years, uh, as well as the African-American community when you look at uh, Washington's policies on uh, black soldiers serving, and, and really just the general history of women's involvement in warfare uh, and, and those campaigns across the history of human time, right? So the idea here was to kind of look at American policy uh, it's an action, right? Uh, whenever it came into being, and then the length of time between what policy said we were trying to do, and and what actually happened, and then some of the disparity between those two groups and the LGBTQ community. And originally, I entered this project with the idea of just kind of crucifying the army in general over its handling of uh, marginalized communities writ large. But what ended up happening, interestingly enough, is that it turned into kind of a good news story. Uh, when you look at the history of both women and minorities and the struggle that the Army, the DOD, has had in integrating those communities across uh, our country's history, you have almost, almost 170 years of time between what we said we were going to do, uh, especially when it was the right thing, uh, specifically, uh, like Kevin uh, mentioned in his uh, presentation, the uh, 1948 uh, Integration Acts uh, and, and laws for uh, women serving as well. And, and the, the lag it took to actually integrate women fully or any of the other issues that came along with integrating African-Americans uh, through the civil rights movement, up through Vietnam and into the 80s. And then what we've done from official policy on the LGBTQ community and actual inaction of those policies, it, it ends up painting a picture that says, oh my gosh, the army actually might be learning from its mistakes on on how it's been handling these communities, and 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 really society writ large, right? Let's let's be honest, we're a reflection of the society that we serve, like Kevin had mentioned, uh, and we end up with a a much shorter time frame between really official policy change and full integration into the United States military for that particular community. Now, that being said, there's a awful lot of work, right? And there were a bunch of missteps, uh, you know, the don't ask, don't tell policy and some of the issues that caused, right? We, we didn't really even have a policy against it until uh, I think about the 1950s. Um, and then when all of that shifted over and we finally said, hey, we're going to do this, there was some back and forth, right? You had the, the Obama administration that initially put that policy into place and, and allowed uh, sp specifically the transgender community to enter service. Uh, and then you had the, the the, the reversal with the Trump administration and then Biden, the Biden administration, of course, came back in and, and shifted it back over. So assuming we don't have any more of those back and forths, uh, what you've seen is uh, in 30 years, the fastest shift in policy for integration of a community to full integration in the military and their capability to serve uh, that we've seen uh, in DOD policy in recent history. And, and that's kind of where that project came from. Wow. Well, thank you, Brian. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, 
listening to both of you, uh, it's really quite interesting to me that, that we, we deal with the question of time, right? There's the, and the, the relationship between sort of intentions and results. And so I have two big questions for us to kick around together here. I mean, one is how much time should we give? Should we, as we, we, when I say we, either we as American society looking at the military or even the military looking at itself, how much time should we give for uh, good intentions to be translated into concrete policy change? And then this, this, the second question is um, how, basically, how do we measure success or how do we measure what we're doing? So I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw that out there and uh, Kevin, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it to you first. So the army right now is working toward the army of 2060. Just for perspective, uh, currently as of 2019, um, Caucasians made up 60.4% of the population and African-Americans 13.4%. In 2060, that 60 of Caucasians moves to 43.6% and African-American stays about 13.6%. There is a discrepancy in the the number of officers, African-American officers right now, level in each category from company grade to field grade, about 11.6%. So right now they want to jump from approximately 11.6% to about 13% to, to ensure that it's representative of the American American population. But that's really that's a that's a really difficult question is because there are so many milestones between accessions for enlisted and and new officers and then getting promoted at each level and making it all the way through the gauntlet of a military career. It's an ill-structured problem, but it takes a career. I, I don't think that we can measure this um, in the short term, but I think that the a way to measure it and a way to gauge progress is to monitor the level of promotions at each level. Because we can start out with, I was one of the officers in the global war on terror era in the early 2000s. But a lot of my peers that I knew who were lieutenants with me are out of the army. Many of them didn't get promoted. Um, so you, you can't really judge it in the short term, but you have to look at it incrementally over time. Is, is what I believe. Brian, I don't know how you feel about that. So I'll come at this from a little different perspective. Uh, and, and that is while, especially when you're dealing with an, an ethnic community and you kind of see those percentages uh, writ large across a, a scope of time or a, a specific period, uh, you know, you, there's there's some math there, right? That, that uh, definitely shows hard metrics for, uh, you know, it, how do you judge this? Is it working? Is it not? I think for something like my topic, uh, in, in reference to the what's, how long do you wait for good intentions, right, uh, to 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 come kick into gear, right, from from saying policy is this to actually living up to that that standard? That's a tough question. Um, it is, however, one that that I think is answerable really more by. Uh, leadership, right? Uh, when, when I say that, you look. I, I like to look at this in terms of that 1948 uh, uh, Integration Act, right? Because the, the president who happened to sign it was, by all accounts, a racist. There's just no two ways about that. His background, his uh, 
upbringing, right? His environment, not, not what we would call a uh, socially open-minded kind of guy, right? And yet, yet he signed it. He, he was adamant. He'd, he'd gone out and for whatever reason, uh, there, obviously there's some historical references and, and stories there that are, are easily researchable, but, but his, uh, this became a personal thing for him. Right, it, it personalized, and and I think that's what we're waiting for. What we're waiting for is leadership uh, to experience a personalization of whatever topic we're talking about, whether it's racism, whether it's extremism, sexual assault, uh, integration of a community like the LGBTQ community. Um, for leadership, it has to be personal, and and how long do you wait for leadership to internalize? a a subject a thing right uh, a change uh, i i don't know that there's a good answer there right that that's when policy says it you got to start as a leader if you're going to stay in the organization you have to start working on that right then and there if you can't do that do you stay in the organization that's another an question challenge. Yeah. so, so ron go kev yeah i just want to i just want to add to that and and i agree with everything brian just said so the initiative is the accessions process. Okay, we know about how many we need to start with. So we need this number of lieutenants, this number of enlisted soldiers. In between accessions and promotion is mentorship and professional development. And that's why I latched on to that portion of it, because at every level you start over. And if the Army is going to get to their 2060 goals, you can't, we can't force the army, hey, we need to promote this number of this ethnicity at this point in time. The only thing that we can do at our level is to mentor and guide those individuals and give them opportunities. So accessions, mentorship, professional development, next promotion board, if you make it through, we start that process over. And at every level, that's what it takes. And that's why that's why I latched on to that aspect of this entire problem because as an African-American officer, I can honestly say that um, it wasn't always there for me like it probably should have been. I made it through uh, by the grace of God, but it wasn't always there. Well, and and this gets to some very important points that you both raised too, is the, uh, to a certain extent, right? It's nice to have numbers that you can measure because that does show progress uh, or can show progress. But when it, but the, also the idea that you, you want to create systems that allow people who do the work well to get promoted, regardless of who they are. And the goal in some ways is less, and this, this is what I'm struggling with, right? Because the, the goal is, while, while, while having a, a force that meets certain particular targets has its value, what you really want more than anything else is you want a force in which any American citizen who can meet the, cri the criteria for doing the job feels welcome in the force, right? And that's, and, and, but, but then beyond that, and so after I say that, then the flip side of that is, is you can't control who's going to decide they want to join an all volunteer force, right? What you can do is you can create a force that is, that is built to welcome all that is built to offer appropriate mentorship for all. And that celebrates the variety of people who will choose to join it. Um, and, I guess when I when you think back on your own careers, um, and you know, Kevin, you you hinted at this, right? It has not been easy, right? You have made it to 06. You are off to Leavenworth in brigade command. So, you know, it has worked for you. But that doesn't mean 
anybody made it work for you. And so sometimes you you had to make it work for yourself. And so it seems to me then that the long-term goal, in addition to this, you know, you want to create the force, you want to create the pipeline, is you want to encourage a leadership that recognizes diversity, equity, inclusion as positive values for the force, which gets me to the hard question. And I'm sure that you both have heard this is what do you say to people who say either directly or indirectly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. DEI. The most important thing is war fighting. How do you, how do you, how do you encourage people to see, because I, I assume that you believe that DEI has a value in itself. How do you encourage people to see that rather than simply sort of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, that's nice, but that's dessert. The main course is war fighting. Brian, I'm going to go to you first there. See, here's where I was hoping you were going to go with the 06. It's going into brigade command first. <laughs> <laughs> see, I could tell by the look on your face. I, you know, that's okay. Hey, man, that's okay. This that's is about stra- it's about strategy, man. I'm trying to sneak up so, on people. Go. <laughs> so I think, I think it's, uh, I think there's a, a twofold answer to that one. The first one is is figuring out their position, right? I, I mean, the, the bottom line is we've all seen it this year in our peer groups, and it, it's been frustrating. I will tell you again, the reality here is I, I was I was coming through school after several you know sessions of DEI stuff that we had done, and and was just beside myself. And so to get to to uh, meet leaders like Kevin who are are you know going into positions that that you know, we'll have influence and, and, uh, a guy who's, you know, obviously got, got his, uh, his value straight around this is, is reassuring, right? Okay. Thank God I'm not out here by myself. Right. Uh, but, but with those people that maybe I'm not on the same page with when it comes to these kinds of topics, that the, the biggest thing I can bring to that table. And, and I think the the most valuable piece is number one, can I identify with, and in any way empathize with their position, right? What, 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 why do they feel this way? What's going on? Right. And, and there've been a bunch of instances where it's either burnout, right. They're, they're, they're DEI. They got, they're, they're experiencing that DEI burnout or, uh, they, they feel threatened. There was a, uh, one of the, um, one of a separate group, right. One of those moments where we broke from our seminars and there was a key leader who was speaking, but was still a small group, white guy, you know, uh, our, our peer group, uh, asked, Hey, how, how, what do I tell that middle-aged white officer who is, is competitive when, when all he's hearing is this constant message of, you know, I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for something else. You're not it because of the color of his skin. And and, and there's a reversal there. You kind of have to stop and appreciate. Unlike Kevin, I I'm mixed race and, and I've seen this right behind closed doors, closed door conversations, uh, with multiple ethnic groups, uh, and, and that, that tone changes. Uh, but, but being able to empathize with that position is the first step. And then the second step is, is walking through the process that going back to the metrics based, uh, you know, idea, the, the fact of the matter is research shows writ large that that diversity piece equals success 99% of the time. Uh, it causes other problems, right? There's there's struggles that come with a diverse work group, uh, absolutely. But the level of success that it can accomplish is is a data based fact. I can point to this and say this works. 
So if I can at least reach a level where we're having a conversation there uh, with a peer or another leader that that is like, ah, I've had it, I'm, I'm done. Uh, and, and we can reach a point of empathy with each other's position and then, you know, maybe have a conversation about why this is a good thing. I, I think those are the two pieces you have to get after. And I'll, I'll, I'll add one other, and that's just this. The only constant is change. That's it, man. The only constant in this world is that things are going to change. We've all heard the phrase, uh, planning is priceless. Plans are worthless. And they're only good till the first shot gets fired. We've lived that our entire lives. And, and the bottom line is that, that, that constant is change is going to happen. How do, we, how do we adapt to it? That's good. Kevin, what do you think? So, so Brian, I, he, and Brian really hit the bullseye. Someone with that attitude, we're at, a, we're at a really interesting position in our careers where the only people that outrank us are generals. So a majority of the individuals that I will interact with are either peers to a smaller degree or subordinates. And so as, as a future commander, if somebody has that attitude, I, I would have some reservations about their ability to lead in my organization. Um, I've throughout my career, I'm typically the only African-American in the room, maybe one or maybe two others. Um, I'm forced to operate in an environment and learn about things that don't always connect to me ethnically or, or demographically. However, it is part of the Army culture. And so if somebody presented that type of attitude to me, I would I would have questions on their ability to lead because it is counter to the Army culture. Also, there's a lack of understanding there. And, and that's a conversation that's education and training. That's sitting down at the picnic table outside and just talking and, and taking off the rank and just talking. I've had several of those conversations, not trying to change anybody's mind. Um, however, I make it very clear that if you can't overcome these feelings, this is not the occupation for you. Because if my son joins the army and he's thinking about it now, um, surprisingly, he's thinking about it, which I'm actually happy about. Um, he, with that attitude, you couldn't lead my son. You couldn't lead my son with that attitude. So when you when you break it down in an existential manner at times, it tends to make folks open up their aperture a little bit wider. But it, but that is a countercultural attitude that is is toxic in our army. Right. Well, and and the idea that we need to build a community where people the the, the more diverse a community is, the more comfortable people are with diversity. The more willing people are to see a to see a diverse community and to see themselves to see themselves in others. Right. That's the idea. Right. Is that, you know, the, ideally in the army, right. When you see another, when you see a fellow lieutenant, you should see, you should not see a, uh, a black man or a white man you should see or, or a white woman or, or, or anything. You should see a fellow officer and you should see a fellow soldier and a fellow American. Go ahead, Brian. You, well, you know, Ron, it's funny. Uh, Kevin brought up an interesting point here and it's, it's one that I uh, took a class, right. Surprise, surprise. Uh, at War College, uh, inclusive leadership, uh, mm -hmm. Alice Nabby. Yes. Right, uh, her her class, uh, and, and one of the things that we brought up was some of the institutions within the institution 
that that may also be preventing a smooth transition towards that that type of uh, change that that Kevin mentioned. Um, and and I, I bring this up only because it, it's interesting to me that Kevin's talking about the idea that hey, if you know if you if you can't get behind this, um, it, you know maybe this isn't what you need to keep doing, right? You, you shouldn't be the guy that I'm looking to lead my, my son, that next generation of soldier into the future. But we've seen it over and over and over again in army leadership. When it, when it came to things like integration of, of African-Americans or women or the LGBTQ community, and, and there are institutions that, that we, you know, welcome onto military bases that, that are at our, our, uh, uh, indoctrination weeks, right? When you start talking about some of these uh, conservative Christian organizations or uh, some of the women's or men's groups that that are out there, that that kind of continually turn these ideas over. They're 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 kind of havens for this thought process, and that's not the only example, right? It's just the first one that kind of springs to mind. Um, but you know, w- when you're when you're looking at the this topic, DEI writ large. And you're talking about, hey, how, 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 or why are we struggling with this? You know, that was one of the things. You know, I kind of hand shot up. What you asked the question, hey, do we, do we need to take a look at that as well? Right? Do we need to look at these kind of other organizations, right? Uh, that we, that are, are part of our history and culture, that are part of our our everyday operations, that that are here, uh, that come to every opening thing that we have uh, when you come to a new post and say, hey, welcome. We're here. This is what's going on. Uh, when some of those places may be uh, exacerbating uh, the problem, or uh, at least be havens for that problem to kind of hang on longer than we wanted to. Right. I mean, it is it is that that uh, that fundamental challenge of diversity of thought means people are going to think and believe a, a great many things. Um, the question is is will those individual beliefs get in the way of the organization? functioning, the organization being open to everyone who wants to be a part of it, right? A, a volunteer force in a free society can tolerate a great deal of variety of opinions, but it cannot tolerate uh, it cannot tolerate an unwillingness to accept one's fellow citizens and fellow officers and fellow soldiers um, as uh, equally deserving of respect. Uh, and I guess that's the the message that I that I, I I feel coming out of both of your talks. That obviously, this is a big subject, and I can imagine that uh, when you've when you've given these presentations in public, you've gotten some pretty interesting feedback. Um, we could go on and on, but I'm afraid that we are just about out of time here. I wanted to give you each a, a short chance to say: Is there anything that you would want someone who does not know the Army? does not know the U.S. military, does not know the Arizona National Guard, would, that, that you would want them to know about the level of diversity within the service today that you think that they wouldn't already know? I, th- I think it's a shining example for American society to emulate. It's not perfect. Uh, it still has a lot of work to do, but it has ex- expressed its intentions to get this right. I, the only way that we can make it right and to make it whole is to take actions at the lower levels of the organization. And that's day-to-day, formation-by-formation, situation-by-situation. We can't get there by, by 
pencil whipping the training. We can't get there by leaders not emphasizing and, and being part of the coalition. Uh, but I think the Army is setting a good example for society to emulate. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Brian? I think uh, what, what I would honestly do is challenge the Army uh, to go out into its communities, into its surroundings. Uh, th this has been a, the Eisenhower program in particular is, has been an outstanding opportunity to engage with communities that we just normally otherwise wouldn't, right? And, and we were kind of having that uh, sidebar conversation before we started the podcast on the, the NSS week that we've got coming and all of these guests coming from all walks of life into an environment that they are not normally in. Uh, and exposed to uh, people that they otherwise would not be exposed to, namely us, right? Uh, and, and that we are are not all knuckle draggers and meat eaters, right? Uh, we're not we're not looking to blow everything up that we encounter. Um, that that we have a, a differing opinion and thought uh, structure that that uh, we challenge each other with on, on a constant basis. I, I think that's the message the army has failed to convey or at least maintain, uh, especially in an environment, like you said, with an all-volunteer army where we're not drafting, right? We're, we've lost kind of uh, the vast majority of the greatest generation, which was the, you know, a huge, huge exposure. Those, everybody uh, had, had some some connection to the military. And now that that population is extremely small. And, and so I, I would kind of flip that on its head and say, you know, what the army needs to do is go out. We need to go out and engage. We need to replicate that process that I've experienced with Eisenhower this year and, and go out and say, hey, what uh, what can we do to help educate the rest of society about who we are and what we do and why we're here? And um, that that's that's where I would say it. So when Kevin gets to his brigade command, time to step outside the gates of Leavenworth and, and go say hi to people, Kevin. Well, I, well, I, I have to say – Will do. That's right. Well, I have to say, listening listening to you guys today, right, and and understanding the going out there is what the Eisenhower program is all about. It's also kind of what we're all about here at A Better Peace. So I'm glad that you were able to present your thoughts here. I'm sure that our audience has many thoughts in response, but uh, I'm sure that they will feel they feel enriched by this conversation, at least as much as as I feel as though we've really done something here. So thanks, Brian Dudley and Kevin Payne, for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and on all the programs. Send us suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice because we are always interested in broadening the community for conversations like this one. After you have subscribed, please rate and review the podcast because that's how other people can find out about it too. We look forward to welcoming you to our next program. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.